Good to go? Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Revelation. It's good to have those of you who can be here, here with us, and those of you tuning in online, we're grateful for that as well. Look forward for the opportunity when you can come join us again. Now, we left off at a pivotal pivotal place in Revelation between chapter 3 and chapter 4. The conclusion of chapter 3 ends the seven letters, the sevenfold letters to the churches slash church of God. And that last letter, as we noted, refers to uh, the gift or promise that Christ gives to this church, refers to the throne. So that's verse 21 of chapter 3. The one who conquers, I will grant uh, him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So with that last promise of the throne, then we transition into the heavenly throne room. Now, before we get into this this next major section of Revelation, which I'm going to just repeat this over and over, perhaps even ad nauseum to you, because this this is essential. It's not a super challenging framework to memorize, but it's essential. And immediately, in just having this framework in your mind, you'll already know more about Revelation than anybody who comes up to you and says, do you know what the prophecies in Revelation have to do with today? You know, or whatever the, you know, do you know that we're living in the end times? Okay. Uh, Yes, we have been for 2,000 years, according to the scriptures. So, uh, from the throne room flows the first sevenfold vision, That's the opening of the seals of the scroll. God willing, we'll we'll get there or close to there today. We'll see. And after after the seven seals are opened, then you have the seven trumpets. These great, mighty angels come and blast their trumpets one after the other. All right? And then there is an interlude, and that interlude is war. Okay? Massive cosmic war followed by the fourth and final cycle of seven, uh, the fourth and final cycle, um, the third of seven, and that's the pouring out of the censers. So again, these great and mighty angels come and, and before the throne of God, uh, there, is, there is this great altar where uh, the, the smoke of the incense of the prayers of the saints rises up perpetually before him. And the angels go and dip bowls into that, into the coals of that altar, and pour, those, pour out those censers then upon the earth seven times. That's it. Then there's a conclusion. The conclusion is a, is a grand climax, not only of Revelation, but of the entire scriptures. And that conclusion then uh, brings the book to an end. So again, if you view it this way, it's really profoundly simple. And as we've said before, let me try to orient this for you, for you all. Um, as we've said before, from the point of the ascension of Jesus to his second coming. That's the period of time we're talking. So the seven seals, that period of time. The seven trumpets, that period of time. The cosmic war, that period of time. And then the seven censors, that period of time. You see? So so again, we're, we're getting different angles on it, different looks at it, but if you just simply understand and know that about Revelation, you're going to keep yourself free from a lot of error. So, 
why I'm bringing that up is as we get into chapter 4, we're going to get to that hub or that center from which everything flows and leads back to, and that's the throne room of God. And specifically here, what we're going to see, we're already going to see this in chapters 4 and 5. We'll see this all the more in chapter 12. That what is really going on in the throne room is the coronation of Jesus. Again, you can't think too tightly chronologically or you kind of get mangled up. Again, this, ancient authors just aren't as interested in chronology as we are. That's why entire books have to be written harmonizing the gospel accounts because they're just not, and harmonizing them into what? Some sort of chronological format that we're comfortable with. They just didn't care. Their point was topical, thematic. Um, and you can see that even in the Gospels, you can certainly see that in Revelation as well. Chronology is not the main consideration. The revelation of Jesus Christ, the imagery of Jesus Christ, the imagery of him in glory, the heavenly reality, how our lives look because of his victory over death and over Satan on the cross. All right, now, we get four glimpses into the throne room of God in Scripture. And I love this because four is such a significant number and so symbolic of, of the earth. We're going to see that with the four living creatures. We'll comment on the four Gospels. Of course, you have four winds, four directions, uh, four universally understood. And here we have four earthly glimpses, four, four visions of the heavenly throne from earth. So the first of those is in Ezekiel. Let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 1. And while we're turning to Ezekiel 1, um, I'll just I'll remind you that the point here isn't to do any exegetical work per se in these, in these texts. That would lead us way too far afield. The point is to simply gather in the data the landscape, the world in which John is experiencing the revelation and communicating the revelation. So we'll see similarities and we'll see differences. But you know, the idea is kind of like, you know, if you just, if you just, if you just taste one very fine kind of cheese, or one very fine wine, or one very fine scotch. It's good, but you don't necessarily have anything to compare it to. Now, or, or you don't have any interplay there. Now, when you've got like four different pieces of cheese laid out beautifully on the cutting board, or four different wines, or four different scotches that you might sample, you start to discover all kinds of different things. And what was previously rather, I mean, it was three-dimensional in and of itself, but then compared to the experience of comparing it to the others, it rather becomes one-dimensional. And it's the harmony of all these things that allows you this, this richness and this depth of enjoyment. Well, we're sampling cheese, wine, and scotch here. We're going to have all kinds, and we're going to, see, we're going to note differences and similarities, but the whole thing is so that we're, we're contextualizing our revelatory palette. Okay, so, so we're getting a context, we're getting data for our, for our revelatory palette so that when John pours it onto us, we're going to understand and, and have, some, have some comparison and some context. All right, Ezekiel chapter 1, and we're just going to pick up at verse 4. A rather lengthy lead, reading, we'll go through verse 28. Again, just soak it in. 
As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually in the midst of the fire, as it were gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot. And they sparkled like burnished bronze. Okay, so hopefully you're engaging your mind's eye here. And I know I'm reading very quickly for you to do that, but hopefully you're engaging your mind's eye and to whatever extent you're able, you're, you're picturing what this must have looked like. Because that's Ezekiel's intent. He wants you to see with your mind's eye what this must have looked like. And now I'll kind of blow the plot a little bit for you, but hopefully it'll allow you to focus more on the details. This is a theophany of God where Ezekiel is basically out uh, in, in the middle of nowhere and he sees this huge storm coming. And in the middle of the storm is Yahweh. So you can think of like the pillar of uh, cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night that led Israel out and God's in the midst of the pillar. Here God is in the midst of the storm. Okay, so that's what's going on. And these four living creatures, you're gonna, what you're going to see unfold here is you're going to see that this is the throne and chariot of God. The throne and chariot of God. All right. So we're describing the four living creatures. Verse 8. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands. I love this. This was the first question Genevieve asked me the other day. We were... Where were we? I think we were in there. We've got a kid's Bible on Isaiah, and we're going to get to Isaiah. And the seraphim are described as having six wings. And so with the middle ones, they're flying. With the two, they're covering their feet, and with the two, they're covering their face, veiling their face in the press. And she, she immediately said, do they have arms under there? <laughs> She's like, how are they going to eat or comb their angel hair? or what? She was very concerned about this. So, so here's the answer. Well, kind of. I said yes, and I think that if I had to have a proof text, this is it. If the, if the, if the four living creatures have human arms and hands under their wings, then the seraphim probably do too. All right, so again, eight. I'm sorry for the digression. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands. And the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As, what, you're, what you're already getting here is uh, something that defies, at least you'll increasingly see this. This defies physics. This defies physics. It really even is like slightly above what you can comprehend. That's, I think, precisely the point. Verse 10, as for the likeness of their faces, this is wonderful, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side. The four had the face of an ox on the left side. And the four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces, and their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, 
each of which touched the wing of another, while two covered their bodies, and each went straight forward. Wherever the Spirit would go, and I would argue that if you're reading ESV, that should be capital S. Wherever the Spirit would go, they went without turning as they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire. You know how a coal, when you look into it, it pulsates? That glowing, kind of pulsating, orange, otherworldly, is it, is it fire, is it wood, is it iron, is it fire? That kind of, that pulsating. And then you see how there, there's four of them. They've each got four wings. They've each got four faces. So the four living creatures is pretty accurate. So their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. Now again, you're thinking about a lightning bolt. You're thinking about the size of a lightning bolt relative to in the sky, and there's apparently lightning dancing around these creatures' bodies. We're talking probably based on those visual cues, very big, very big. It's hard to exactly comprehend the scope here, but when you've got lightning bolts dancing off of them, uh, that's, that's in all likelihood what uh, gives us an indication of the scale. Verse 14, and the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning. So there's these massive creatures, but they're moving at speeds you can't possibly understand. And they're simply here and then not here and then there and then not there in a way that utterly defies physics. And it's really, really a cool representation of God who is anywhere and everywhere he wants to be at one time and appears and manifests whenever and wherever he wants to be at any given time. Verse 15, now as I looked at the living creatures... I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creatures, one for each of them, four of them. Okay. So these, these four living creatures, okay, sort of in a square with their wings touching, uh, on, on the four side with each living creature is a wheel. So you've got, you've got four wheels. Are you getting the picture here? Now, again, I'm going to spoil it for you, but in the midst of them is Yahweh. So here's your, here's your imagery of his chariot. The, the massiveness, the awesomeness, the glory, the, the speed, the otherworldliness, the defying of physics, the, just the incredible nature of this whole thing. This is the chariot and throne of Yahweh that's being depicted for us. Again, coming out of the storm. Verse 16. As for the appearance of the wheels and their construction, their appearance was like the gleaming of beryl, and the four had the same likeness, their appearance and construction being, as it were, a wheel within a wheel. When they went, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went. Again, picturing this just defies physics. A wheel within a wheel, and it doesn't have to turn in order to go any direction. It's really incredible. It gets more incredible. Verse 18, and their rims were tall and awesome, and the rims of all four were full of eyes all around. 
these wheels appear to be living. They appear to be angelic beings. In fact, angelic beings are often described as having eyes everywhere. I had a discussion with that about Genevieve. You know, with uh, yeah, he was like, "How do they sit down?" <laughs> yeah, isn't it great? I, I just told her I don't think they do. <laughs> James, of course, chimes in. How do they punch anyone if they've got eyeballs on their hands? He says, "Well, first they have to shut their eyes, and then." <laughs> oh my. Okay, verse 19. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures rose from the earth, the wheels rose. Wherever the Spirit, again, I would put capital S there, wanted to go, they went. And the wheels rose along with them. For the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Okay, so look at that. Look at that. When those went, these went, and when those stood, these stood, and when those rose from the earth, the wheels rose along with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Again, I don't have any problem putting a capital S there. Over the heads of the living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse, shining like awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads. Keep that in mind, by the way, when we get to the so-called crystal sea uh, in the Revelation. Okay? So, so there below and above their heads is this, is this crystalline-looking uh, expanse, the likeness of an expanse, shining like crystal, spread out above their heads. Verse 23, And under the expanse of their wings were stretched out straight one toward another, And each creature had two wings covering his body. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings, like the sound of many waters. Ah, you remember that? So we're going to see that the voice of God sounds like many waters. And so too does this chariot. You can see the close, I mean, the absolutely close connection between these angelic beings and God. I mean, literally, his will is their will, and their will is his will, and they're created beings. And yet, there's that, that's about it as far as distinction goes. When I heard the sound of their wings, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army, when they stood still, they let down their wings... And there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. Okay, pause there. So as much as you're, as much as you're capable, are you, are you getting the vision? There's these four living creatures. 
Uh, they've got four wheels. This is the chariot of God. There's this, this crystalline canopy above them, and upon that canopy, and, and one might even get the sense that their wings come up over the canopy. Upon that canopy sits a throne, and upon that throne sits one that looks like a human being. Who are we talking about here? This is Jesus. This is Jesus, plain and simple. Now, some would say that this is the Father, um, and I don't think we ought to let that disturb us. Father and Son are one God, so whether you want to see the Father here or the Son here, I, you know, again, it ought not disturb us, but, um, but I, think, I think the human appearance really, really leans the evidence towards Jesus. Um, for those of you who have just come in, it's Ezekiel chapter 1. We've got some Bibles up on the side. No one online will see you sneaking up there and grabbing them. The, the camera ends right here or something, so... Um, okay, <clears throat> verse 27, and upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. All right, so, so now we're, we're, you know, we've, done the, we've done the four living creatures, the wheels, the expanse over the top, the throne. Now we're describing the one sitting upon the throne. The upper half like gleaming metal, the lower half perhaps even viewing the train of the robe as we'll see in Isaiah 6, uh, the lower half flame of fire, and then brightness around him, and the brightness is described like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud, so the rainbow. Now, what we're going to see here, and, and we're going to see here in Ezekiel, and we're going to see again in Revelation, it's not really the rainbow in the shape of a rainbow, it's the rainbow in the shape of a sphere. So the full spectrum of light, the full spectrum of glory all around him. Now, this has a, this has a beautiful, I, I'll just pick out two, two cents uh, meaning to it. In, in the first place, it's, it's as I said, this is the one who is light. And the light of his glory is, reflect, is refracted and in, in, in reflected into the full uh, spectrum of colors all around him. So just beauty and stunning. Um, it's probably most accurate to say it this way. After the flood, when God puts the rainbow in the sky, he's taking a part of that glory and putting it up there so that when we see the rainbow, we remember who he is, and then we simultaneously unite his identity with his promise to never destroy the world in this way again. From the other direction, having that promise of God, having the literal physical rainbow that is this reminder of God and his glory and his promise, then to see God manifested in full power in just unimaginable glory, to see him shrouded and encircled in the rainbow is to be reminded that even though he is incomprehensibly awesome and scary looking, he is gracious and merciful. He makes man, he redeems man, he loves man, 
his dwelling place, the dwelling place of God is with man. That's the climax of Revelation. You go, well, how could I ever stand before a God like that? St. Paul would answer and say, you can't. Flesh and blood cannot inherit this. You must be raised in a spiritual body, your body made spiritual, like unto Christ. You must be fully glorified. Then you can stand in his presence. This is what Christ has given you. But this is why also then to stand in the presence of the one capital G God is to be small g gods, as the scriptures testify to be spiritual men, born in the image and likeness of Christ, to come into the fullness of the stature and maturity of the Son of God. So that when we stand before him, the dwelling place of this God is with man. When we stand before him on the last day in the new heavens and the new earth, we will be like those four living creatures, utterly and and entirely uh, humbled and cannot hardly even stand or comprehend his awe and majesty And yet, perfectly, that's where we belong. Perfectly at place. So, some reflections there on the appearance of the bow, the rainbow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, as Ezekiel says. And and verse 28 here is going to take us to the end of this meditation. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Okay, so there's a... There's glimpse number one into this throne of God, the heavenly throne of God. Um, And here you see it certainly mobile via its chariot form. All right. Since we're in Ezekiel, let's flip forward to Ezekiel chapter 8. Let's just get a little bit more flavor here if you don't mind. Are you enjoying yourself or is this too much? All right. Again, to what extent you're able, try to picture this in your mind's eye. Because that's really, it's revelatory in character. It's visual in character. Even though it's a written word, it's meant to be visualized. All right, chapter 8, verse 1. And now we're just, we're really just going to hunt and peck a few, a few verses here. Chapter 8, verse 1. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month. Again, look at the historical aspect of this, where we're seeing all this cosmic, otherworldly, incomprehensible stuff, it's still concretely rooted in the history of the earth. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. Then I looked, and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man. Below what appeared to be his waist was fire. And above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. I love how he says the likeness and something like. He can't put his hand, he can't put his mouth on it. He can't find the right word. You know, this is, I, this is indicative to some extent of, of why it is that Paul said, you know, he says, talks about himself, we think, going up to the third heaven uh, and not being able to repeat the things that are spoken there. The, the human use of language here on earth in our fallen state simply not capable of speaking the reality. And so the best you can do is things like, you know, uh, the likeness of or something like. So again, just trying to finish out verse 2 here. Below what appeared to be his waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. He put out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my head. And the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, 
to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north, where was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the vision that I saw in the valley. Referring back to what we just read in chapter 1. Okay, a little bit more data there. Let's skip ahead to 9.3, chapter 9, verse 3. I think this is just a single verse. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing case at his wrist. Right, and then that narrative continues. But the glory of the God of Israel goes up from the cherub on which it rested. Um, this is one indication, if I'm not mistaken, where the four living creatures are called, uh, are, are called cherubim. So what you find in the scriptural data is that we actually don't understand what the... So, so an angel is a spirit. That's the most basic definition you can get. But these spirits can take on form, as you're seeing with the four living creatures. Pretty much in heaven, whatever isn't a, a human being is one of these spirits, is an angel. But what you see is these angels are so diverse and so spectacular. And, we're, and so, yeah, I, I guess I already said diverse. That's really my point. Um, they're, they're so diverse. Some, some theologians of the medieval period said each angel is a species unto itself. That may be a little bit of an exaggeration. But when you look at humanity, human beings, and consider all the diversity of human beings, and then consider that we are the crown of this physical realm. Now think of all the diversity of beings underneath us. Animals, plants, bugs, all the way down to the microscopic amoebas. I mean, millions upon millions, maybe billions, I don't really know, um, creatures just below us. Right? Now, what ought we think of the heavenly realm? Again, it's no leap to say millions upon millions and exceedingly diverse. Exceedingly diverse. I mean, God is diverse. God is creative. And whereas we in our egoistic, you know, fallen state, we can't help but think, well, there's not enough. Or if there's, or, you know, there's not enough space for me to have my own space. Or if there's so many creatures and they're all glorified, you know, I'm not even going to have a place there. I'm going to be unimportant. We've got this idea that, that more uh, in, in terms of like pure number, in terms of uh, quantity, means less value for the individual. This isn't how God works at all. For God, every, every being gets everything. That is the full, the full uh, measure of his gifts. And there's no scarcity. I think the universe shows us that. When you, when you see these pictures of what is thought to be the known universe and they, they calculate 13.6 billion light years and they remind us that this is just only what you can see. Perhaps you had your mind blown with some of these numbers or some of these pictures. You've seen YouTube videos where you start to zoom out from Earth and 15 minutes later going way faster than the speed of light, you know, you realize you're just barely scratching like the surface of distance in the universe. I mean, this is who our God is. And he's got this much, like this is what he's showing us. I think one of the many things he's showing us is, look, space isn't the problem. <laughs> I've got so many glorious creatures that there is most certainly room for you as well. And I will glorify you. You don't have to worry about scarcity. Okay, so um, you have, yeah, you have uh, 
It's this beautiful picture of uh, the glory of God riding on a cherub. So you've got angels, spirits, and then you'll see, you'll see that sometimes called cherubim, seraphim, angels, archangels, and then principalities, thrones, dominions. These are all, again, spirit is what the thing is. We don't know if these are names of different kinds, different species, or if these are names of different offices. Pastor, deacon, deaconess, acolyte, sexton, right? Those are offices. It's not who the person is. Some of these names might be names of the offices that the angels hold, the roles that they play. So again, we don't, we don't know that much. I think we want to avoid two extremes. We want to avoid the extreme that, of somebody who just lazily says, well, it's, it's all up there. We don't know anything about it. So anyone who wants to speak about it is, you know, foolish. I think that's a big mistake. Look at what we've just read. But the flip side of that mistake, or the opposite error, would be to assert that, hey, we know all there is to know. And in fact, we know so much that we can actually rank the hierarchies of angels and place individual angels and scriptures in that hierarchy and explain it all. And you see some of this, again, in the late medieval period, maybe particularly in some Roman Catholic theology. Um, but that's, that, to me, is an equal error. The Bible doesn't give us that data. It does give us a tremendous amount of data that ought to fill us with awe and wonder. And we ought to, have, we ought to start to adjust our own personal cosmology along the lines of the creed. That God is the maker of things visible and invisible. And so in the same way, you know, you picture sort of the cosmos, however you picture it, you know, a, a sphere wherein lie all the galaxies and, and all of physical creation visible creation. You ought to think of every bit as much or more um, an entire other dimension being that which is invisible, that which is heavenly or spiritual. Um, in, this, in this sense, a very, a very plain way to look at it, an overly simplistic way to look at it would be if you think of heaven as up there, and that's okay. By up there, you don't mean get in a rocket ship and eventually make it, but you just think of heaven as above, then between earth below and heaven above are countless, countless, countless realms of angels and hierarchy of angels and domains. So that's, um, I mean, that's just like if you want to get this right from the horse's mouth, look at Ephesians. Look at what Paul writes in the letters of, of, of Ephesians. You, you could read the whole book in about a half hour, I think. It's a piece of cake. Um, well worth your time. But that ought, to, that ought to get us to perceive our lives differently that there are spirits all around us. We even confess this in our liturgy with angels and archangels and the whole company of heaven. Right? There's spirits, there's angelic beings all around us. There's good ones, there's bad ones. This is why we pray in Luther's morning prayer, let your holy angel be with me that the evil foe may have no power over me because the evil foe is flying around. I think it's in Ephesians where he's called the, the prince of the power of the air. So again, in Ephesians, you get that vision of what's in the air are spirits, and there's spiritual warfare going on that we're not privy to. And as Ephesians hints, what our, what our preaching and proclamation of Christ and his gospel and the, and the majesties of God's word, what that does actually has an effect in these principalities and powers of the air. That's why Paul at the end of Ephesians says, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with the principalities powers, etc., of darkness, which have arrayed themselves in the heavenly places. 
So we will, the first thing we will probably do in realizing this reality is we'll have our minds blown because we, we will have thought, well, I, I knew it, but I didn't really believe it. Or I believed it, but I didn't really conceive of it anything what it's truly like. Okay, let's, uh, let's do a little bit more in Ezekiel. Are we still good? We still got patience for this? Yes. All right. If not, too bad. No. <laughs> All right. Ezekiel 10. Um, we'll, just, we'll just read uh, 22 verses or so. We'll try to do it quick, and then I'll try to get us on to the other material. Um, I spun ahead way too fast. There we go. Ezekiel 10, verse, uh, starting at verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, there appeared above them something like a sapphire, in appearance like a throne. And he said to the man clothed in linen, Go in among the whirling wheels underneath the cherubim. Fill your hand with burning coals from between the cherubim, and scatter them over the city. And he went in before my eyes. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the house when the man went in, and a cloud filled the inner court. And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with the cloud, and the cloud was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard as far as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. So again, in chapter 1, where we saw the throne of God in Ezekiel, now we're hearing these themes reinforced, so that their wings sound like the voice of God, and the voice of God sounds like their wings. Verse 6, And when he commanded the man clothed in linen, take fire from between the whirling wheels, from between the cherubim, he went in and stood beside a wheel. And a cherub stretched out his hand from between the cherubim to the fire that was between the cherubim and took some of it and put it into the hands of the man clothed in linen, who took it and went out. The cherubim appeared to have the form of a human hand under their wings. And I looked, and behold, there were four wheels beside the cherubim, one beside each cherub. And the appearance of the wheels was like sparkling barrel. And as for their appearance, the four had the same likeness, as if a wheel were within a wheel. When they went, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went. But in whatever direction the front wheel faced, the others followed without turning as they went. And their whole body, their rims and their spokes, their wings and the wheels were full of eyes all around. By the way, this is... Um, so you remember our hymn, uh, Ye Watchers and Ye Holy Ones. What's a watcher? These guys. That's what we're singing about. They're covered in eyes. They're watching. They're otherwise known as watchers. So when we sing Ye Watchers and Ye Holy Ones, this is who we're remembering. Bright cherubim, seraphim, and thrones. Remember the rest of that? Yeah, we're singing all about the angels. Verse 13, as for the wheels, they were called in my hearing the whirling wheels. And everyone had four faces, 
The first face was the face of the cherub, and the second face was a human face, and the third the face of a lion, and the fourth the face of an eagle. And the cherubim mounted up. These were the living creatures that I saw by the Kabar Canal. And when the cherubim went, the wheels went beside them. And when the cherubim lifted up their wings to mount up from the earth, the wheels did not turn from beside them. When they stood still, these stood still. And when they mounted up, these mounted up with them. For the spirit of the living creatures was in them. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. These were the living creatures that I saw underneath the God of Israel by the Kabar Canal. And I knew that they were cherubim. Each had four faces and each four wings, and underneath their wings the likeness of human hands. And as for the likeness of their faces, they were the same faces whose appearance I had seen by the Kabar Canal. Each one of them went straight forward. All right, so what you've just seen is God depart from his temple. The glory of the Lord that filled the temple is departing because of the people's wickedness, because the punishment coming upon the temple is going to be destroyed um, by, the, by the Babylonians. And so what, you, what, what Ezekiel is seeing is the, the heavenly chariot and throne of God, and he's seeing God, the glory of God, come out of the temple, get on the, get on the ch uh, chariot, and the chariot go up into heaven. So the glory has departed. All right, thus far, Ezekiel. Now, we've got uh, some shorter ones. You're probably thinking, thank goodness. Uh, Isaiah 6. This will be familiar because this is in our liturgy every week. In fact, I think that this is the one, this is the, one of the pieces of our liturgy that's so old it may well have been the case that Jesus uh, used it liturgically in the synagogues. I'm referring, of course, to the Sanctus in our liturgy. So Isaiah 6, so again, Ezekiel 1 is the first vision, Isaiah 6 is the second vision, um, and then we're going to see um, in, in um, Daniel 7, that's the third vision, and then Revelation 4, where we're going, that's the fourth vision. All right, so chapter 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Okay, so we know that Isaiah is a priest. He says the train of the robe filled the temple. Either he's in the temple or his vision involves the temple. But if you're, if you're, facing, the, if you're facing the holiest of holies, you've got the curtain and you've got the incense altar burning right there. And all of this makes sense, by the way, for how, how the throne room of God in Revelation 4 and 5 is set up. So you've got the, the altar of burning incense, which, in, which these things are a replica of that which is in heaven. Remember, um, God tells that to Moses, and then that gets transferred onto Solomon with his temple and the structure of it. And so Isaiah is view, he's viewing the holiest of holies uh, on the curtain, blue and purple, 
with cherubim embroidered in. Uh, cherubim, I think, maybe seraphim, I don't remember. Embroidered in. And behind that is what? The Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat of God, the throne of God. Okay, so when he tells us that he's seeing these things in the temple, like the train of the robe filling the temple, what you've got to imagine is that the earthly copy suddenly becomes the heavenly reality. So he's going to talk about the smoke filling, the train of his robe and the smoke filling. That's coming up from this altar. He's going to talk about the, the seraphim embroidered in the, in the heavenly, uh, in, in the heavenly uh, what am I looking for? Real. Curtains, thank you. Yeah, the curtains are drapes that are torn, by the way, at the cross. Heaven is now torn open. The, glory, the dwelling place of God is with man. Um, and then behind that, seated on the throne, is Yahweh, the throne of mercy. And again, on the throne, what's, up, what's on top of the throne? The seraphim. Okay? So it's a, it's a glimpse into heaven. That's what the Old Testament architecture is meant to be. All right, so that'll help us understand Isaiah's vision. So I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Everything becomes supersized. Above him stood the seraphim. So the seraphim that would be flanking him on the mercy seat now have, are actually flanking him. He's seeing the heavenly reality. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So that holy, 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 translated into Latin, is sanctus, sanctus, sanctus. And that's our sanctus. So in the, you know, we, we sing, um, I don't know what it is in our present litur liturgy. We've got all these different settings. Holy, holy. I think that's setting, I think that's setting one, actually. But anyway, you know what I'm talking about? Does anybody know the tone off the top of their head? If we're willing to sing. Yeah, 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 that's it. Listen to him. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, that's setting, that's setting two, 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 yes. Yeah. And I think I was singing setting three. Why did we get, ever get all these settings? I think it was the 80s. I really do. I think that's when they came to be. I think prior to that, we had one setting, and everything was wonderful. Um, okay, so we sing, the, we sing the Sanctus, all right? Now, why are we singing the Sanctus? Because we're recognizing that what we are seeing is the glory of the Lord. It's why, we, it's why um, altars become, almost from the start, the altar slash table becomes the center of Christian worship because we recognize that the, the Ark of the Covenant has been taken away. The mercy seat of God and the one who sits upon it, that's Christ enthroned on the cross. So you've got altar, you've got the, you've got the Eucharist that is on the altar, the body and blood of Christ sitting upon the altar. He's enthroned in glory. And then you've got the Sanctus with angels, archangels, and the whole company of heaven. You've got the, the seraphim leading us, and we are now joining in the heavenly worship. Heaven and earth have become one, and we are joining in the heavenly worship. We are acknowledging that what Isaiah saw, we're seeing. That's the point of it, liturgically. Okay, so uh, they all sing holy, holy, holy. And then verse 4, And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. 
So as these angelic beings are praising, the altar of incense flames up, and the whole thing fills with smoke, and this is the smoke of incense. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Now you can see why the Christians from the beginning adapted this text for the service of the sacrament. Because we are there in the presence of angels, archangels, and all the company of heaven, and a seraphim comes and grabs a coal from the altar and touches our lips. No, no. Better and more glorious than that, in fact. Your pastor, no. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a letdown. Better and more glorious than that is behind the, the visual visage of the pastor is actually Christ himself. Christ himself comes to you and he takes from the altar not a coal of fire, but his own body and his own blood, and he touches it to your lips. And what the seraphim says to Isaiah, Jesus says to you, for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. This has made atonement for you. So this is actually what we experience on Sunday morning in, in, the, in the Eucharist, in the Lord's Supper. This is the fulfillment of what Isaiah saw. It's the fulfillment of what happened to Isaiah. It is, in every sense of the word, the culmination, and equally, if not more, glorious, because it is God enfleshed in the fullness of his glory, giving himself to us. All right, that is the glimpse into the throne room of God that we receive in Isaiah 6. Yes, I see a question, right? Um, is that uh, the cold, the hot cold, has some relation with the, the commandment, the law? Okay, so the question is, does the hot coal have some relation to the commandment, to the law? Not really, other than it's the law that accuses Isaiah, and he knows that he's a man of unclean lips and serves a people of unclean lips. Rather, the, the visual there is that this is the holy altar of God. And so that which is holy cleanses that which is unholy. That which is perfectly clean cleanses that which the law has deemed to be unclean. And so it's from the altar of God then that the law, the accusation of the law is answered. And that, of course, I mean, to be technical about it, that the ability of the coal of God's altar to do that is predicated upon the crucifixion of Jesus. That's where the true atonement comes from. And then that atonement is communicated, in this case, through the coal touched to his lips. We're also given no indication that this touching to his lips in any way uh, harmed him or was painful or anything else. And there's, there's um, an aspect of the Lord's Supper, too, because we're sinners through and through. Just because we're born new, just because we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, doesn't mean we're not sinners. And to have the body and blood of God touch you, the glorified body and blood of God, you know, not, not in his earthly ministry, so to speak, but after his death and resurrection and ascension, to have that body and blood touch you, like, 
why don't we disintegrate? Why don't we turn to dust? So there's a, there's a mercy there. And God, um, you know, in the same way the angel touches his lips and he's not burnt, God touches us and we're not harmed. All right, um, I think we can do the last. Let's get to, uh, and then we'll be all set for Revelation 4 next week. Daniel 7. Okay, and Daniel 7, we've just got a couple verses here to look at. One, two, three, maybe five total, I think. All right, chapter 7, verse uh, 9 is where we'll pick up. Oh, yes, 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 this is familiar, of course. This is the ancient days and the Son of Man that we've looked at before. So, once more... uh, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. These are all the angelic host. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. And then, of course, over to 13 and 14, where the Son of Man is revealed. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Do you see how this is a coronation of the one like the Son of Man? He comes to the throne of God. He comes to the Ancient of Days. He's presented before him, and to him was given dominion, lordship, or reign, and glory, and a kingdom. See, he rules. This is a coronation. That all peoples, nations, languages should, should serve him. His dominion, his lordship, is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So what you're seeing is the coronation of the Son of Man. Now, that's the perfect segue into Revelation 4 and 5 because, as I said, the main action taking place in the throne room of God in Revelation is the coronation of Jesus Christ. And what we're going to begin with is the opening of the seven seals, which all have effects upon the earth, but the opening of the seven seals are for the point of unrolling the scroll. What's on the scroll? There's your, there's your cliffhanger for next week. The Lord be with you.